You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. Good afternoon. My name is Chris Costa. I'm the executive director of the International Spy Museum. I'm joined today by Mark William Lippert, a former U.S. public servant who was the United States ambassador to South Korea from 2014 to 2017. Prior to his tour as ambassador, Lippert had served as chief of staff for Secretary of Defense Chuck Hagel, chief of staff for the National Security Council, and assistant secretary of defense for Asian and Pacific Security Affairs in the Department of Defense. On March 5, 2015, he was attacked by a man wielding a knife in South Korea. At 41, Ambassador Lippert was the youngest ambassador in the history of the relationship. Good afternoon, Mark. Afternoon, Chris. It's very nice to see you again. Thanks. Great to be here. So we're going to have a conversation about your tenure as the ambassador to Korea and hear your thoughts on the future trajectory of the U.S.-Korean alliance. And I know you just came back from Korea, so it'll be interesting to hear some of your perspectives. So that's perfect. Works out very well. So as I prepared for this, I realized how popular you were, and you were widely congratulated, lauded, respected really for the impact that you had on individual South Koreans. In short, they loved you in South Korea. Um, why? And wh- why were you so different from maybe past ambassadors? How did you have such a positive impact? Well, thanks again, Chris. Great to be here. And uh, you're right, I am just back from South Korea and I have the jet lag to prove it. So um, I guess what I would say is first there was just something that worked uh, between uh, myself, uh, the South Korean people, and I would add on to it, uh, there was this element where the, re- the bilateral relationship between the two countries was at an extraordinarily good place. Uh, the United States' popularity was at all-time highs. Uh, the President Obama was incredibly popular in South Korea the policy foundation of the relationship was strong. And in short, all of that context enabled, uh, I think, myself, my family, all the men and women working at 
the U.S. Embassy and the United States forces in Korea to really work in a fulsome, creative, uh, and deep relationship with the South Koreans. I think my personal story in South Korea played a little bit of a role in that, uh, you know, early on we made a decision, my wife and I, that we were going to be really out in public a lot. Uh, We uh, started off, I think one of our earliest initiatives was, and we didn't plan for this, it just happened upon us, our our basset hound, uh, his name is Grigsby. Uh, he had his own, we, we initiated a Twitter account because we noticed he was so popular and all the South Koreans would come up and start talking to him. And turns out, you know, I think Buster Brown shoes with the Basset Hound brand was popular at some point. So Grigsby was kind of a familiar face. That's funny. That got us off and running into this public diplomacy sphere. And then kind of coupled with it, we had uh, the birth of my son r- relatively shortly thereafter in a South Korean hospital at Yonsei Severance. Uh, and and obviously the knife attack, which I'm sure we'll get into later, was was a, a seismic change. But I think to the point that we just generally enjoyed it. We enjoyed the culture. We enjoyed the people. We enjoyed the history. And we enjoyed being out uh, among uh, the South Koreans and their country. And I think, and I'll stop here, I think the, the thing that South Koreans know is or, or will suspect or quickly figure out is if you're faking it. It has to be real. It has to be genuine. Uh, and I think that was ultimately what helped us probably more than anything else, that it was real. We were interested. We were curious. We were grateful. You know, the whole soup to nuts package of why this worked in a very virtuous cycle to really allow us to learn a lot, go deep into, and enjoy our time in South Korea. Well, it's obvious you had a great time there, and uh, as I said, the South Koreans thought very much of you. In Robin, I should mention, of course, uh, you guys were a, uh, uh, a very, very close-knit team. So let's talk about your son for a moment. So his name had some impact also on South Korea. Can you explain that a little bit? Sure, absolutely. Um, well, his name is James William Sejun Lippert. We decided to give him a Korean middle name. And he actually uses this name. He, he, we call him Sejun here today in the United States. We called him Sejun in, in South Korea, obviously. And it essentially means to live um, a, a clean and uh, a hopeful life, more or less. I'm trying to do the exact translation. But it has, it, the, the other element of it is that we used a process what's called the Saju, pro, uh, Saju process. It's kind of a fortune teller is a rough translation, but it's a, you, you essentially, uh, you select a, a, a the scholar. They want to know when the baby was born, the time, the weight and all that. And they come back with, with different names that you can pick from. So we picked one of the names. We liked it. Uh, we, we liked the way it sounded. We liked the, the clean and hopeful life. And we liked the way it just worked with this little guy that had just uh, been born in South Korea. So I think Koreans really latched onto that as well. well. That's a terrific story. And before we move on, I should note you also had a daughter in Korea as well, correct? That, that's right. And she she was born a- almost at the very end of the the term there. She's Her name is Caroline Sehi Lippert. Uh, she has a very similar uh, process by uh, selecting her name. And uh, I think you know, even though she was born uh, at the end of the tenure, I think in many respects she's the strongest one in the household and probably feels, uh, it's funny, she spends the most time with our nanny these days who speaks 
you know, to her in Korean. She's a Korean wow. citizen, and I think she's the one who retains the most Korean language, uh, even though she lived there the shortest amount of time. So that's a great backdrop on not only cultural assimilation, as you mentioned, there's a confluence of, of, of good things that came together uh, on your arrival in Korea. So how did you use that to advance U.S.-Korean relations? And what were your priorities? Well, I think you, you put your finger on the, a critical part of the relationship. I think most people think of the ambassador as someone who spends a lot of time in the embassy, spends a lot of time in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, demarching people, reading talking points, going to diplomatic receptions. And to be sure, that is a critical part of the job. But ultimately, what I came to the conclu- I came to the conclusion uh, during my tenure there, and pretty early on, that the strength of the U.S. ROK relationship, or a a key and principal pillar of this relationship, is the people to people connection, and that people to people connection is durable. It lasts beyond governments. It's uniquely personal, almost like a the free market in that it brings the relationship in a in in a at the individual level uh, tailored to individuals, uh, so that the relationship is very um, personal to people, and it also is something that essentially in two free market democracies, with the emphasis on democracies, obviously, the popular support of the people enables the relationship to flourish, or conversely, if it is unpopular, really limits the ability of the relationship to work. Uh, And so I felt that really getting in, ensuring that there was a strong base of public support for the USROK alliance relationship, whatever you want to call it, was a critical and uh, paramount uh, responsibility of the U.S. ambassador in South Korea. So what kept you up at night, and what were your principal worries while you were there on the ground in South Korea? When I was there, the you know a principal worry that really did keep me up at night was tensions along the demilitarized zone. And in fact, in August of 2015, if my memory serves me correct on the month, there was some sort of you know, artillery or shooting exchange up at the demilitarized zone. And, you know, Chris, to back up for... For those who don't follow uh, South Korea, North Korea closely, I know you've got a very informed uh, listenership, but often, even before I went to to be ambassador, I was learning things about this kind of unique and almost arcane situation up at the demilitarized zone. You know, essentially the peninsula is divided at the end of the Korean War. There's not not a peace treaty that actually ended the war. There's an armistice, so we're technically still at war. Uh, And as a result, there are... a a great deal of both U.S., South Korean on one side, much more South Koreans, and North Korean troops in very close proximity along the demilitarized zones and out into what we call the Northwest Islands along the Northern Limit Line. And that makes for a very tense situation. And that tension and risk of miscalculation spiraling into something bigger was a really a deep concern of mine uh, while I was there, and that that was something that very much kept me up at night. And certainly, the law of unintended consequences, miscalculation. So, understandable, understandably, that's a principal concern. But it seems that you were able to diffuse those situations uh, 
Well, what I would say is it takes a, a team, uh, and it's the the it's you know it starts with the South Koreans, right? Uh, and you have uh, the South Korean military, the United States military, working really shoulder to shoulder in a structure that's called Combined Forces Command. To back up, there are three basic commands out in uh, South Korea that the United States is involved with. There's United States Forces Korea, which is completely U.S., with a couple of liaison officers from allied countries here and there. There's Combined Forces Command, which is a joint, uh, or a combined command, I'm sorry, between the United States and South Korea, and in certain defense conditions that rise to high levels of conflict, the United States four-star general would take command of all troops on the peninsula, South Korean and um, South Korean and American through Combined Forces Command. Day to day, the South Koreans uh, have control and responsibility uh, for defending uh, South Korea. And finally, there's United Nations Command. And this this is a uh, command um, that is technically uh, blue-hatted, as they say, pursuant to Security Council resolutions. A U.S. four-star general is in charge of it. And that is principally charged with enforcing the armistice along the demilitarized zone. And it's, it's, it is the United States working within those three commands. It's the South Koreans working within uh, those commands, plus their own uh, unilateral uh, structure to really work together to try to maintain peace and stability with a really, especially at the time, a fairly hostile uh, adversary and at a very close distance on the other side of the demilitarized zone. So very complex environment. You navigated it very well. Uh, working with, of course, your your counterparts. So let's back up for a second. It would be worth knowing, like, what got you to South Korea? How did you become an ambassador? It would be great to hear about that journey that took you, you know, from, I think you were from the Midwest, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And Chris, you know, I just, harkens back to the, the last question. I'd be remiss, especially given your background, uh, if I didn't give a shout out to all the intelligence community professionals that contributed to that, the common threat assessment is critical, the indications and warning. So it's really not just the militaries, it's the in, entire sweep of interagency process from uh, our intelligence professionals, diplomats, men and women in uniform, and other others working on that. So I, I didn't want to give short shrift to your uh, former comrades in arms there. No, I appreciate that. We're going to come back to that because it will be great for the audience to understand how you, as a policymaker, as an ambassador, how you used and leveraged your experience as an intelligence officer. So I don't want to get too far ahead of our narrative, but uh, that'll be great to hear from you on that and how you used intelligence. Even as late as last year, we were very much worried about the Olympics and the threat assessment and the community, our community, the world community came together and I think we were very comfortable with with uh, the situation as we, we saw it last year. We even sent some folks from the NSC to Korea. Um, so tell us about your background. Sure. How, how did I get to uh, this point? Um, the short answer is if you would have told me 10 to 15 years ago that I would be the United States ambassador to the Republic of Korea, I simply would not have believed you, nor would I put money on that, uh, more to the point. Um, the long and the short of it is I was minding my own business serving as Secretary Hegel's chief of staff, a job that was among the most difficult in my career. It's uh, Secretary Hegel is a great uh, human being. I just actually had lunch with him yesterday. We're still in Excellent. touch. He is just was was a great guy 
but a very demanding boss. And I think uh, everybody appreciates that when you're the Secretary of Defense and uh, you've got the responsibilities you have, you know, $600 plus billion budget, responsibility for global military operations, all of the um, what I would call social services that come with the Pentagon, weapons procurement, so on and so forth. You've got to be uh, demanding. And uh, the chief of staff job uh, was wearing me out, to say the least. But it was also the job I probably learned the most in my career during which I served in that capacity. Just the, the breadth and the depth of what the Pentagon does is unbelievable. So I was minding my own business doing that job. And I was approached by two senior foreign service officers, one with deep Asia experience, one extremely high up in the State Department. And they essentially uh, recruited me to, uh, to throw my hat in the ring for Ambassador to Korea. And their, their argument was essentially, um, you, you are close to the president, you know the president, the Koreans are interested in a political appointee, given that there's one in Tokyo and one in uh, Beijing, political appointed ambassadors. Uh, two, uh, given where the tensions were, you have a deep working knowledge of the Pentagon. Uh, and three, you know the Korea issue set uh, you know, fairly well, especially on the security side, from your time as assistant secretary and are comfortable working with State Department colleagues on Asia and so on and so forth. That was the argument. And uh, at one point they said, you know, and plus we, we, we just don't really have anybody else. And I said, well, you could have left the last <laughs> one out, but um, it's joking. But the, uh, the, the, the long and the short of it is did a quick round of consultations and everybody seemed to think it was a, a good idea. And that's, that's essentially how I ended there. And, you know, I expected a good, interesting you know, tour of service in South Korea, but I had no idea that it would be extraordinary and life-changing in the way it was. It, I mean, it exceeded all expectations. It changed the direction of, I think, our family's lives, which we talked about the names. That's right. just the tip of the iceberg. And really is, you know, I think, you know, wedded our family to that country uh, going forward into the future. So it, w- it was a pretty amazing thing. And at the time, our our foreign policy was to pivot toward Pacific. Wasn't that a common uh, term of art at the time? A, a Pacific pivot, I think. Absolutely, uh, under the administration. Absolutely depends on uh, you know who you uh, talk to in the administration. Some said pivot. Some said rebalance. You know, right. and you know. Uh, you know, Chris, from working in the interagency, the naming rights are always critical here, you know, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> um, right. the branding. Uh, but in all seriousness, uh, exactly, there was a big focus uh, on uh, essentially putting more strategic focus, resources, and essentially energy, for lack of a better term, into uh, the Asia-Pacific region. In short, because President Obama, early in his tenure, had felt that that increasingly was where, into the future, that was where the U.S. strategic interests were going to lie in disproportionate weight. And so he wanted to make sure that our foreign policy uh, was aligned, uh, our foreign policy, our resourcing, our focus was aligned with where he felt our strategic interests, again, would be disproportionately uh, aligned into the future. So President Obama, the pivot, the emphasis on really regional security issues, 
And before that, you actually were at the NSC as well. So that also gave you a view of the rest of the world, correct? Because you were the chief of staff of the NSC. Was that your first job in the administration? Yes, that's right. That's right. And essentially, I had these two chief of staff jobs that gave me a global uh, perspective. But what you quickly find is, uh, is the chief of staff jobs, uh, as global as they are, you are drowning in an administrative uh, right. and bureaucratic work, which, which is internal organization. Internal, exactly. and, you and, know. and I think that's what makes the NSC unique. Uh, I think you're getting into what's unique about the NSC is that when you come into the NSC uh, in the administration, first, on the one hand, it's probably the easiest national security architecture or, or, I'm sorry, body organization in which political appointees can be seated quickly because self-evident, there's no confirmation process. Um, But the other thing that, on the other hand, that, that makes it hard is that each NSC and the NSC staff are really unique, I would say, products of the president and to a lesser extent the national security advisors thinking and how they want to organize the the institution and there are two things at work here there's kind of a misnomer and and again i don't want to presume your your listenership doesn't know because i know it's probably among the most uh informed listenership on inside washington machinations but just for for those of us who 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 want to get level set here there's essentially two things going on there's how you organize the actual structure of the meetings, for lack of a better term. Who will, who will constitute the decision body? Who will sit on that? Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, those are perennial favorites, but right. White House Chief of Staff. Will the Deputy National Security right. Advisor get a seat at the right. principal's table? And then how, how do you organize principal's table? First of all, the, the National Security Council, which includes the president, the principal's committee, which is essentially all the cap, you know, the National Security Cabinet, plus some White House staff and depending on the, the administration, others, less the president, the deputies committee, which is generally their deputies, and then the IPCs, the, the uh, interagency policy committees. And how that structure is organized is a big undertaking. Then on top of that, you've got to figure out how you're going to staff it. Right. Right. How, who are your, how are you, how are you going to organize your directorates? Every, you know, there's always going to be an Asia directorate. That's there's right. always going to be an Africa directorate. There's, but there's, probably going to be a non-proliferation director and in intelligence, but, but how, how do you organize them? Which ones do you add? Right? right. How do you weight new issues like cyber, especially at the time that president Obama was coming into office and then how, you know, you have scarce resources in terms of uh, personnel and how do you allocate uh, the personnel among those various And each administration really puts a, to put a finer point on it, puts their fingerprint on, on exactly that right. NSC, right? And you were there as a chief of staff and I can, I can attest to it. The chief of staff is the one that's managing all of that. And you're seeing all of that play out in a new administration. Yeah, and I, I think that's the hardest thing is that when you come in, nobody's really sure where you sit, who's who. Uh, you know, I would say I, I think the Bush two team seemed much more organized in terms of I think they kind of had figured out a lot of the jobs early on. But I think the Obama transition was not as crisp uh, just because I think there was less focus on a transition and quite frankly having worked on the Obama campaign 
a commitment to try to keep the focus and the throw weight of then candidate Obama and the operation on winning the election. Uh, and I think that was something that, that there was a lot of focus on. But what you quickly figure out, and I'll stop here, is that the, the presidential transition is just not enough time. It's very interesting because you've got so many things you have to do in such a short amount of time. Uh, and it's so many decisions quickly that unless, again, you're planning months, maybe even a year out, it's hard to do all that in just that very short allotted time. We'll be right back after this. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. An incredible amount of learning. And then you were chief of staff of the NSC. Then, as you said and articulated, then you worked for the Secretary of Defense as a chief of staff, then as Assistant Secretary of Defense for Pacific Affairs. And then, of course, you became the ambassador. But somewhere along the way, you became an intelligence officer. So that's an incredibly interesting story to our audience. So can you share some of your experiences, both in Afghanistan and Iraq? Sure, absolutely. Um, well, first, I'd always been interested in being an intelligence officer along the way. I, you know, my, my, my biggest problem was when I graduated from university, which was the mid-90s. Few people were hiring. The peace dividend was upon us. And cuts across the board. So I came to Washington and really didn't have a job, uh, was interested in working in the IC, and ended up just by chance on Capitol Hill. And that's kind of how I got down the track uh, and eventually met then-Senator Obama. But along that time in Capitol Hill, I was constantly thinking about trying to go back to OCS, uh, try to figure out a, a career path in the military. My, my grandfather was an aviator in the Air Force. Uh, my, my uncle was an aviator in the Air Force. I had some, some mother's cousins who were Navy officers. So that, that service was in our family, and I was always interested in it. And lo and behold, I found this program that essentially is a direct commission through Navy intelligence, signed up for it, did all the paperwork, and got in. And but, but I think what, what was most appealing to me was once I got in, interest in deploying. And uh, that's right. That, that was what made the, the job pretty appealing. And long story short, how did I end up in Iraq with, with, with the SEAL team? 
the chief of staff of uh, then Senator Obama had a were family friends and they their their son was thinking about getting out of the navy and he happened to be an N2 at one of the SEAL teams and he said you need to come to Iraq with us uh, you're going to get mobilized anyway they're calling everybody up you will get the most out of this experience if you come with us and it's an irregular force, so we're looking for you know older people with different backgrounds right. who can do kind of flexible, irregular stuff quickly because you kind of have that background of what we're looking for. And long story short, uh, I took a couple calls from uh, then a uh, SEAL team commander to get me through the, the bureaucratic process, but I showed up. And off I went in 2007, 2008 to Anbar province. And uh, it was among the most rewarding, difficult, challenging, uh, inspiring experiences I ever had. I have friends for life from that deployment. Um, You know, you just, there you were, you were working on a range of issues from traditional intelligence activities all the way to uh, civil engagement, dealing with the tribes, uh, often, you know, liaising with the Marines. And, you know, the, the joke around was the toughest tribes to unite are our own. That's right. Uh, so, right. so there's fights, the interagency. Exactly flags, right? right. Exactly right. So just an incredibly rewarding experience would have it with me. And, and quite frankly, I came out of that experience and got back on kind of after, you know, the requisite transition out and a little rest, got back on the Obama presidential campaign and went back into the White House. And I think looking back on it now, probably didn't have it all out of my system. Uh, just enjoyed it so much in, in not a, you know, a fun way, but just professionally rewarding way uh, that it was, I was drawn to it. And, and as it, fast forward the tape, ended up going back in, doing two more years, about, give or take, on active duty, including a tour to Afghanistan. And again, another set of experiences, difficulties, challenges, um, camaraderie that, you know, is unique and, uh, you know, among, if not the, uh, you know, most rewarding professional experiences uh, in my life. And that's where we met. Exactly. And yeah, I, I can very much relate to your story because, you know, it's a terrific opportunity to to reset, be humbled, and with humility, you're surrounded by warriors, women and men alike, and uh, it's an extraordinary experience. And uh, it was a touchstone for me while I was at the National Security Council, not forgetting where I recently had served. I had just left there after seven years as a civilian. So are you still in the reserves? I think I saw you in uniform not too long ago, Not right? too long ago. I'm, I'm on my way out of the reserves, and... Uh, uh, at least moving to the the IRR, as they say, gotcha. uh, and largely it's uh, due to what we just talked about, uh, the family commitments. Right. Um, just got to the point where wasn't quite sure if I uh, could do another deployment. Uh, I, I've done, I think I've done four. I'm not up to these these guys who've done 20, but do another one with kids of such a small right. age. I mean, that's that's what makes a lot of these people who serve so special is the sacrifice they make. I mean, you, you hear it, you, you, but you don't really realize it until you, know, you have kids and realize what these men and women did being separated from their families, among other things, life, life on the line, so on and so forth. The, the true meaning of service and sacrifice, and uh, you know, hats off to, to people who do that. It's it's amazing, and you do. But but and, and finally, I'll just say it. It did hit home 
just how difficult this can be on people's families as well. Oh, that's well said. Um, not a lot to add to the, to what you just articulated. So that kind of gets us into, let's just talk leadership. But going full circle, we oftentimes don't talk enough about leadership, but all of those experiences that we covered in this talk really are about learning, lifelong learning. And then you were able to take that into South Korea with a lot of humility, a lot of dignity, and before we talk about the knife attack, I really want to understand your leadership philosophy. As a, as a young ambassador, when you rolled in there, you were confident because you, you had done well and you had already served. But what was your philosophy and how did you approach leading? We touched a little bit on that, but uh, on reflection. It's a good, good question. Um, you know, I guess I'm not one who sits down and, and reads leadership books and tries to inculcate it uh, and uh, tries to basically take a, someone else's playbook and put it on myself. I think the first thing that I, I think I, I try to do is, is you, and I mentioned this a little bit, you have to be yourself and exhibit leadership in a, in a way that is real and genuine to you. Because if you're sort of trying to fake it or trying to essentially project someone else's style uh, that's not organic to you. I, it just—I don't think it works in the end. It may work for a short time, but I think that—that's point one. I, I think you—you you hit the other two touchstones, which is you know you've got a mix of you've got to find a mix of confidence or, and humility, uh, and know that you don't know everything, and know that you're going to make mistakes, and admit your mistakes, and don't be overly embarrassed by your mistakes. Some embarrassment is fine. But I think that mix of going back and forth between confidence and humility, a couple of other things that I think that are really important um, are, you know, being intellectually curious and being intellectually curious about the uh, the work that others on your team are doing. Right. Uh, and I think that that really helps you understand what they're doing, but moreover, I think helps motivate people because if you're interested in what they're doing in a real and genuine way, I think that's important. Adaptability. You know, I think in this day and age, the speed of information, the speed of the world, the speed of events is so fast. And it's it's exponentially. If you talk to people who served, you know, in Early Bush, early Bush two or Clinton, they'll tell you over and over again the biggest difference between their job then and today is speed, uh, and I think that's so that that puts a premium on adaptability. And then there was a bit of this. This is where I did draw. I, I think I'm accurately as, as, as citing a leadership rule of uh, General McChrystal from the JSOC uh, Soft community. And he, I think his rule was, it goes a little something like this, do only the things that you can do at your level. In other words, if you're the four-star general, do the things that require the four-star general's weight, good offices, um, contacts, connections, relationships. Right. Don't go down and play captain. Right. Uh, empower and your people. Empower your people. That's so right. with that, it's, it's how do you think of yourself in an organization doing the things that only you can do at your level while while then empowering, allowing that strong, um, basically, delegation flow, for lack of a better term, to, to really 
let folks do their jobs at their level. And it's a little like, I mentioned it before, it's a little like a market mechanism, right? People at the lowest level have all these lower levels, have all these interactions and information that you can't possibly have right. at the top. So making sure that that, that is functioning correctly and giving your um, the, the people on your team uh, cover, right? And I think the, the last thing I'll say on that is uh, I, you know, people talk uh, you know, a lot about creativity and taking risks, but I think it's important um, that you don't allow uh, you know, a risk-averse culture to set in. And uh, yeah, I, I, you, again, this is limited experience, and who am I to pontificate on this? But what I would say is you know, I, I think that the key is when people do mistakes – do make mistakes, which you will. It's a human endeavor. Right. It's not to come down too hard. It's to you know fail forward, all of that that you hear. Because what you don't want is a situation where one crime of commission is somehow worse than 70,000 crimes of omission, right? That's what you That's don't right. want to do. And the opportunity cost pursuant to not taking chances or not being creative. I, I think that is a really creative thing. So in short, the just to, to recap, you know, the, the the twin pillars of confidence, humility, being intellectually curious, adaptability, doing every doing the things that you can do at your level and allowing that ecosystem to flourish. And then when people do make mistakes, including yourself, uh, to not uh, overreact uh, or over uh, penalize uh, right. individuals, especially uh, if they're trying to do the right thing, and especially if they're trying to be creative, and especially if they're trying to to move the needle in a direction that is uh, very much in line with the the enterprise goals. So that's some great wisdom, and uh, I like what you said about reacting, not overreacting. A former senior CIA officer used to say that because um, the inter- in the interagency world, there's a tendency to overreact to, to mistakes. And some of it is, uh, interagency posturing. And, uh, I-, I think there's a lot to be learned from that kind of simple, straightforward leadership. So let's talk just for a minute about the knife attack, because all of your impact, you'll always be recognized for an incident that took place where really you were thrust into the media globally on an attack that uh, was very, uh, very uh, frightening, actually, uh, when, when uh, we had an opportunity to see it almost play out live. So uh, please share with us the story. Sure. Um, I was having breakfast uh, at what's called the, the Sejong Center, which is in downtown Guanghamun. It's essentially almost the the rough equivalent of the Washington Mall of uh, Seoul, and it's just a you know a, a, not even a mile you know not, not even a half mile from the embassy. It's essentially across the street from the embassy, so very close location. Uh, it was a you know it's it it was characterized as a left wing group. You know I I'm not going to dispute or amend that characterization, but. That, that's those are others putting that words, but you know, as a friendly audience, walked in in the morning. Uh, was having breakfast, uh, sitting next to I think it was a member of the National Assembly and a, a union leader, and just chit chatting. And uh, all of a sudden, at about you know uh, my two o'clock, there was a scream and a yell and a flash. And before I knew it, there was uh, someone essentially on top of me. And um, I don't remember the events at all, but what I'm told and the eyewitnesses account varies person basically slashed, uh, you know, 
deep uh, wound across uh, my, my face, my, my cheek, uh, that subsequently required 80 external stitches and more wow. internal stitches that ended up being, uh, I think it was roughly two centimeters from my carotid artery. So I was fortunate it didn't go further, right. uh, but then you sort of hold up and how far two centimeters are, and that's the difference between life and death. Um, uh, at some point there was, I, I believe I stood up, there's sort of a, you know, you're trying to figure out what happened. There was no video footage of it, but stood up, fought with a guy, um, you know, re- suffered some more uh, arm wounds, uh, hand and arm wounds during the fight. Uh, a total of, of seven, I think, was was the total number of wounds that I suffered during the attack. But bottom line, sometime during that, and the best we can tell, uh, and this is what the after action says, I was tackled to the ground by um, the the... The, the National Assembly member, former special forces lawyer in Korea, so he had done all the training with the guys, right. and uh, he sort of broke up the fight after you know, everyone was stunned. It was his classic moment. People kind of re- who were there tell me that they were stunned. Everybody, it seemed like forever we were fighting, and then in comes uh, a National Assembly member, essentially tackled us to the ground. On the floor, there was a dog pile, and we were eventually separated um, you know, and then I'll just say this: This is where it really gets interesting in terms of the military training. Um, it works. Uh, I was standing there, a little bit in a haze, and it was kind of like that scene in Saving Private Ryan where he's dazed on the beach. Right. And the, uh, remember, the the, the earth is swirling, and a foreign service officer came up to me. And he was almost kind of sobbing and kind of yelling, and that just snapped me out of it. All of a sudden, you were back focused again, and in my head, check pop this checklist, which was, okay, you know you're hurt pretty badly, you know you're bleeding, but first rule, be calm. Be calm, be calm, be calm. I remember that just being, it just popped into my head. And the second was, uh, you know, in some order it was, uh, look for the secondary attackers, uh, move off the X, and get to first aid. And it just kind of flowed. flowed. And, uh, you know, there there's a, there's a science behind this this military training, and it, it really works, and it, it's there when you need it. That was what was amazing. Um, you know, we, we proceeded outside, and, and what, what I'll say is eventually made it to the hospital, um, and, you know, they put a bunch of stitches in my, my face, uh, a bunch of uh, stitches in my arm. Uh, uncovered a leg wound at at the hospital oh, really? as well. It was interesting. I don't know. I to this day I don't know how I got it. Uh, and you know, I I was basically once I got to the hospital, which was pretty close. I knew I was fine. I remember asking the doctor. I said, "You know, I'm not going to die, right?" And he said, "Yeah, you're not going to die. Uh, you're you're fine." And uh, he he you know, so the the whole thing was kind of over in a matter of minutes. What I would say quickly. Uh, and we can take this anywhere you want, is that obviously it was a horrible, horrible moment, Um, you know, this momentary uh, kind of episode. But, you know, a little like what we were talking about before on leadership, you know, you live in a world of humans, right? And it's a human endeavor. So it's not whether you're going to face adversity it's when and, and how you respond. And what was so amazing about this was the response of the Koreans and Americans who worked together. Um, 
you know, the, the foreign service officer who snapped me out of it, another foreign service officer jumped on the dog pile of Koreans who were subduing uh, the attacker and then came to my aid and helped me and uh, a Korean bodyguard who were getting me out of the building in orderly fashion. Another amazing thing happened in the busy Guanghaman Square, a reporter for a Korean newspaper ran out into the street and flagged down a police car, uh, putting, you know, himself in some peril, if you've, especially if you've ever seen traffic at Seoul, Korean, you know. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, the doctors working together to patch me up, uh, the, the response of the South Korean people, uh, you know, that was amazing. I mean, and, and I'll, I'll end here and just say, you know, when you have, you know, I don't know how many people was outside, were outside of my hospital room, out, you know, just you know, hundreds, if not thousands of people, people in front of the embassy, people, all of that. It just reminds you that for all of the, and you know, you, you and I have been around the world and seen some bad stuff. Um, and for all the cynicism in Washington and the bad stuff we've seen, there are these moments in life where basically, for lack of a better term, the, the good comes out. Yeah. And it's just amazing. And these great human endearing re- Redemptive, you know, extraordinary qualities come out, and you know, th- people, you know, thousands of people, hundreds of people, writing me letters, and so all of that reminds you that as cynical or downtrodden we can be from time to time, there are these moments that remind us all how good, decent, and just extraordinary people can be. Yeah, you know, and what strikes me, I mean, it, it's a Tremendous story because of the outcome, obviously, but it's humanizing. And you took advantage of the goodwill and to use that as an opportunity to make sure, as I recall, that the, that the Korean people knew that this was not an indictment on their society whatsoever. These things happen in the world. And uh, again, you had the cultural awareness, the instincts, the however you want to characterize it, to just make sure everyone knew that. Yeah, and I, you make a great point in terms of the South Koreans, you know, there are regional differences, but it's a fairly homogeneous society. And there is, at times, there can be a, a sense of collective guilt. And when I woke up in my hospital bed after the surgery and all of that, I was kind of watching television and sitting there and I remember I had this this huge hospital room. You know, it was funny. They put me in this gigantic room. It's bigger than our house in Washington. And uh, the public affairs officer was there and he was the same guy who was kind of the first one to kind of, you mm-hmm. know, kind of crying and upset, overstating it. I still tease him to this day a little bit about it. But he he had, he's Korean American. He was adopted. He had, He really knows the country. And we started talking and I kind of watched the news and I re- realized there was exactly that sense that you talked about, which was there was fear that somehow we would be angry or that this would jeopardize the relationship. Right. And, you know, you know, the foreign minister had called Washington to put out a statement that the alliance was strong. And you just kind of felt that was all good. But I kind of turned to Robert, this guy's name, the officer's name is Robert Ogburn. I said, Robert, are they... I think we need. I think they need to hear from me, and we need to put something out. So Great we we steps. put we put out yeah. this tweet, and the tweet says something like, you know, doing well and in great spirits. You know, Sajin 
Grigsby, Robin, and I, we didn't have Sehi at the time. You know, we're doing great. Can't wait to get back to working on USROK Alliance ASAP. And then at the end, I remember Robert and I were talking. I said, we, we need to put something in Korean here. Yeah. Um, and we happened upon uh, a slogan that is often used by our two militaries in the alliance. It's, it's kachikapshida, and it means we go together. Uh, and so I said, let's put kachikapshida at the very end. And we sent it out, and it just went viral all over the place. It picked up in all the media outlets, picked up. And I think everybody just, it was this kind of collective deep breath. Right. Everybody's okay. You know, and then after that, we could sort of get on with the, the, you know, the, the, the business of, of getting out of the hospital and, 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 and making sure that we got back to work, you know, over a period of time. And I'll just say this, you know, the interesting thing is it's so durable in terms of, you know, lasting. I mean, people still to this day come up to me, apologize, uh, come up to this day, uh, the, you know, the, uh, older women will sometimes rub my face over the scar. Uh, the, uh, you know, it, I had a taxi driver, uh, a couple of trips ago, got, got recognized me, got out of the cab, held my hand, walked me to the, the place I was going. And when I tried to pay him, he said, you will never, you know, you're never going to pay in my cab. Uh, and so you still, ha- I mean, it's just amazing the reaction of the Korean people. So I, I think the the point is, you know, it's it's a two way street. You know, we we took um, a moment of crisis and working together uh, at a very much a grassroots level, but also the governments too. But I, I you know, really, it was kind of a genuine, uh, I think, outpouring. We we as a two peoples worked together to actually take this crisis and turn it into something lasting, durable, and a net. A very much a net positive for uh, the the relationship between our two peoples. Well, that's a great story with a great outcome. I'm glad we talked about it. I think it's it's worth worth hearing again. Um, I, I I almost want to end on that note, but I think it's important uh, since our audience is always listen, interested in obviously uh, security issues. You just came back from Korea. Where are we today? You talk a little bit about the Singapore summit, denuclearization. If you can wrap all that together with the where the North Koreans are today, deception or not, ballistic missiles, where are we right now? Where's the relationship? If you could just offer some of your thoughts. I, what I would say first, the relationship between the United States and South Korea is strong and largely because it's pretty durable, pretty flexible. There aren't there's no doubt there are some serious challenges ahead, uh, which, you know, I, you know, just a few of them are alignment on North Korea policy, the burden-sharing agreement on how much each side will pay. There's also some trade friction. Uh, there's a 232 action on automobiles that the Koreans are very concerned about. So getting those three and some other pieces right, incredibly important in the days ahead, but pretty strong. I'd, I'd also like to see a little more uh, work in a couple of areas on the alliance, what I would call sort of new, some some newer frontiers like cyberspace, global health, energy, environment, things like that that can really fill out the tree, for lack of a better term, and make the relationship not just about North Korea and not just about a, a couple of trade issues, but really get in, get deeper on some of these other issues where the two sides have a lot of expertise. So you take the the alliance and then you put it into this. North Korea context, um, where I think we are, we're at a, 
we're clearly at an inflection point. Uh, you know, the, the Singapore summit, you know, built some momentum. There was a new approach that was tried that hasn't been tried essentially in in 25 years, which the, the South Koreans called the top-down approach. You got the leaders together, and essentially you had sort of a three-leader dynamic going. That has, in my view, not quite run completely out of steam, but is running out of steam. And you've seen the North Koreans over the past couple of days essentially weigh in with some public statements to that end that I think reinforce that. Where we go from here is a real question uh, because what you have, you have two processes going, for lack of a better term. You've got an inner Korean process going between the two Koreas, which I don't think is often well understood in Washington, that there's a long history uh, of the long-ish, given you know it's not thousands of years, but it's decades, of the two Koreas trying to move forward on a, a, a certain set of issues to either build, to, in, in the case of the current South Korean government, either to allow for some sort of peaceful coexistence, reduce tensions, facilitate exchanges, so on and so forth. You have a denuclearization process, which is very much an international process, bounded up in Security Council resolutions, multilateral sanctions, and then other countries, not just the South Koreans, not just the United States, adding bilateral sanctions and interest, along with global equities concerning the nonproliferation regime. So you have these two processes. They are linked formally by the president of South Korea, Moon Jae-in, and how the, those two processes are coming into a little bit of tension with each other in that I think the South Koreans want to make more progress on the inter-Korean uh, issues. But what is holding back is probably, is probably not, not the right word, but what is at least something that they're going to have to contend with are these international sanctions that have been overlaid over time and are not going to come off, at least according to the U.S. administration, right. until, unless and until we see some progress on denuclearization. So that you have this tension going between the two. On the North Korea front, the North Koreans seem to be only interested in negotiating with the president. Uh, they'll accept Secretary of Pompeo once in a while. They have not shown up for working level talks with That's our right. special representative, Mr. Began. Uh, and I tend to think you need uh, some of these working level meetings, actually a lot of working level meetings, to put some process, to put some framework around a very difficult and complicated set of issues but before you get to the leaders. And look, if you want to do the top-down approach and get the leaders together, that is one thing. And I think some people can argue that that's a good thing. I think re you know reasonable minds can disagree on it. But I would say at a minimum, you need both. Right? You need some working-level expertise meeting if you're going to have these summits. So where we are, Chris, in a, in a nutshell, is the summitry running out of steam, no real working-level talks, at least that I can see from the outside, um, and a little bit of tension between uh, the U.S. and South Korea starting to, starting to simmer. The question will be then, I think, will there be a, a, another Kim Jong-un, President Trump summit, how will the, the two allies, the U.S. and South Korea, manage the two processes going forward? And three, if the North Koreans do not essentially give or at least engage in a process towards denuclearization, 
will we go back to more sanctions and pressure? Finally, the other issue that is incredibly important here, but is you know the all-day seminar at the Brookings Institution is <laughs> is uh, is the regional implications. You've got the Chinese, the Russians, the yeah, Japanese. We haven't even talked about that. We'll probably have to get you back here one Massive. of these days. So I won't I won't uh, I won't belabor that. But that that'll be another thing that. Yeah viewers or uh, your listenership should 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 tune into so last thing i'll say is the next three to six months critical follow it closely it'll be a very interesting time could be very historic could be very challenging so well said i was just going to comment that it really does remain to be seen if we're on a constructive path so what you just said is i think is exactly right but you know best you've worked the regional issues out there we'll get you back here at some point and maybe we can talk about you know the china factor and other implications in the region this has been fascinating ambassador lippert you're a friend and uh, i'm very happy to uh, to have you here at the international spy museum any final thoughts no, just thanks for having me, and, and uh, I, uh, you have among the most sophisticated listenership in the entire world, so it's a great honor, privilege, and uh, pleasure to be on this podcast. Thanks, Mark, and thank Robin as well, well because I know that uh, she shared the load with you while you were on the ground in South Korea. Absolutely. Will do. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember... Every Tuesday, we will post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at INTLSpyCast. That's INTLSpyCast. Talk to you next week. Thank you.